This week on the ACO podcast, I speak with American saxophonist Branford Marsalis ahead of his upcoming tour with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, directed by ACO principal violin Satyavanska, also joining us this episode. On this wide-ranging tour, Branford appears as soloist in works which include contemporary British composer Sally Beamish's saxophone concerto, Under the Wing of the Rock, and the final movement of iconic 20th century Russian composer Stravinsky's Three Pieces of Clarinet. In addition to directing the program, Sato appears as a soloist in a pair of 20th century Argentinian works. The first is an arrangement for strings of Nuevo Tango pioneer Astor Piazzolla's Four Seasons of Buenos Aires, and the second, composer Alberto Hinesteras Concerto for Strings, which features additional solos from each section of the orchestra. Recording in person at the Sydney offices of the ACO, the conversation took an equally wide-ranging form. We arrived quickly at Branford's hectic 2019 schedule, his obsession with sound, and the specific musical demands of splitting his career between jazz and classical performance styles. Thank you so much for making time for this, Branford. No, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited for the tour as well. So am I. Yeah. You've been keeping pretty busy so far in 2019? Yes, it's been crazy. Mm. I think we've had about two weeks at home in the aggregate since January. So uh, it's been a grind. <laughs> is that pretty typical? No, no. This one is this is just, it makes the classical prep much harder because you're always on the go. I hadn't done that in a while. January was tough, but by February it was, okay, we're good. Is it a mental thing as well as a physical thing with embouchure and... Well, embouchure is embouchure. I mean, I know that there were certain things I did when I played jazz that I couldn't do when I was playing classical. So ultimately, as my teacher predicted, the classical embouchure would win out. So yeah, you can't do that. So mm. man, yeah, that's fine. He goes, no, you really can't do that, but knock yourself out. And I tried for four months and I went, crap, he's right. It's found out the hard way. I can't do it. So I just switched. And it's mostly the mental aspect of it because you know, you have that cascade of just this, the mountain of notes that you have to learn. The conversation pivots quickly away from schedules to sound. Sound is infinite. There's so many sounds. I mean, if you think about the fact that Johann Sebastian Bach uses the same system as Jimi Hendrix. I mean, they couldn't sound more different, but they are both limited by a 12-note system. You know, Italian opera sounds nothing like German opera, which sounds nothing like French opera, which sounds nothing like English opera. Sound has a unique character. And when you look at an opera by Britain or an opera by Mozart or an opera by Puccini, they look exactly the same on the board. Turning to the program itself, in preparing for this interview, I've been struck by the pivotal role of silence in some of the pieces you'll be performing, negative space. So you start this concert starkly, unaccompanied, playing the third movement of Stravinsky's three pieces for clarinet solo. What do you tend to find is going through your mind on stage in those final moments before the notes speak? Nothing. You know, don't screw it up. No one wants to make mistakes, but once you grow into the reality that when you make mistakes, no one else knows other than a, a clarinet player. If you create an emotional effect with the piece, that piece propels. It just moves and it moves and it moves. And there's so many notes and the notes are broken up into all these different rhythms. I mean, it's a brilliant piece. Uh, people will like it. That Stravinsky really grabs you by the throat with this rhythmic energy. Do you recall your first encounter with Stravinsky's music and maybe what first? Oh, I, I remember my very first encounter. I was playing clarinet in youth orchestra. And Mr. Demborian says, you know, oh, we're going we're gonna to tackle the right of spring. Uh, okay. 
Yeah, right of spring. So I went and, you know, my dad had the record. I just listened to it all summer. And I found the clarinet part. I was listening. And I got this. It's good. It's hard. It's great. And then the first rehearsal came. And when I looked at the music, I just couldn't play any of it. Because Stravinsky's music, as complex as it is, sounds a lot easier than it reads, which is his gift. Because a lot of times, people who write hard music, it sounds hard, which is why it fails. But Stravinsky's music is, you know, despite all of the modernity of it, it's all very melodic. There's a melody you can find, and it's all very singable. For Sato, embracing the silence before and during a performance takes on a slightly different form. Thank you so much for making the time between rehearsals to chat. Much like a couple of Branford's solo pieces in this program, you open the Hinostero Concerto for Strings entirely unaccompanied. What are the last things that are tending to be going through your mind before that first note speaks? I guess you kind of try to get into the zone and enjoy the silence. I've got to say that probably the concert hall is one of the last places of silence in this, you know, noisy modern world that you actually have to turn off your phone, that you actually have to be quiet and that you can sort of feel people breathing almost. You try not to think too much about how you have to fill a big hole when you're playing just all on your own. So you're quite content with the fact that you are just a lone voice almost inside your head doesn't mean that because you're alone that you somehow have to try to scream things out. It's That's a great thing. You can actually like whisper things when, when it's only you. Obviously with the Hinastera, it starts with that. We're playing the first and the last movement and the first movement is a lot of that sort of silence with the lone voices and then, you know, the last movement is the absolute opposite of that. And all the spaces between the silence and the noise, it's all what you do between the notes, you know, how you treat time. You could also say that that's playing with silence as much as you're playing with the noise or the sound. And the interruption of the silence, of course, also. I mean, if you scream something in a total silence, it's a totally different uh, effect than if everybody's screaming at the same time. You, you won't hear the one lone voice. Many of Branford's other ideas around interpretation and exploring a sound come back to listening. When you are put in a musical situation with different musicians and you have to find a way to make it work and you avoid the one sound fits all approach. That's the fun to me. That's the challenge. When I'm improvising, I'm really trying to be in the moment. I'm trying to allow it to come to me rather than dictate what it is. And I bring that to, to, to symphonic music when I'm playing. I use the orchestration to determine what my entrances are rather than sitting there and counting. Because when you're counting, you can't count and listen at the same time. When you're counting, you're counting. And a good musician can feel the beat internally and you can know where you are. You're not creating a sound when you read the dots. Pre-existing pieces, I try to listen to them for a long time. And the more you listen suddenly you can hear which instruments are playing what, and then those become my cues as to when my entrances are, rather than going, okay, eight, nine. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> if I can avoid that, yeah. I, I'll avoid it. So it's thinking of 
in the context of something like these tours with the ACO, it's thinking of the band more like a band yeah. than an orchestra. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is a band to me. I think the soloist is more effective when they understand that they're a part of a band. Uh, my, my job is to play with the orchestra, to blend in, to find a way to create a sound that works. So I'm focused when I'm playing and rehearsing on how my sound blends in with the orchestra. Branford also went on to credit a lifetime of listening to the recordings of other musicians for the development of his sound and musical understanding. Very quickly for me, music tells me what it is. And when it tells me what it is, it's clear what it requires. Because of the thousands of records that I've listened to, regardless of the style, I've listened to enough music. So when, I, when I'm here, Tango, for instance, yeah, I know, there's, there's not a universe of choices. They're very simple choices. Because you have this, this bandagnon is playing the melody. And the bandagnon is basically like a really, like a, you know, South American accordion. And it's smaller, but it breathes. You can feel it expanding and contracting while they're playing. Which is why, you, you know, you're not going to go, because then it would be going like, it would make no sense. So you hear one note and it goes, it's just such a beautiful sound. So for me, um, I mean, the choices are, are quite stark and very simple. I really believe that musicians should know a lot. You have to know a lot. Mm. But you should hear more music than you know. Likewise for Satu, Studying the recordings of Asta Piazzolla himself was especially important in preparing her performance of Four Seasons in Buenos Aires. I'm trying to refer as much to Piazzolla's own quintets and the way he treated the music. Because this is an, like an arrangement of an arrangement of an arrangement almost. Um, and therefore, there's in the interpretation, there's a lot more freedom on what you can do. So I look at it very much what's on the page in this case is very much sort of indication of what this person tried to do with it. But a lot of the ideas that I've gotten are actually from Astor Piazzolla's own performances. And that, I guess, is the sound. But we can't sort of pretend that we can do that sound because we don't have those instruments. So the trick is sort of trying to find the textures within the orchestra that would support it to turn it into something else. The trouble with, I think, string players often when we start playing this kind of music, we sort of think, oh, you can sort of be a bit more relaxed. I actually have quite the opposite um, uh, sort of way of looking at it. I think you've got to be even more disciplined with rhythm and everything because it, it's got to be tight. It's like semi-improvised music that has been written down and what's been written down, we actually really have to own it so that it doesn't sound like it's been written down, if that makes sense, you know. I mean, if you wrote down what a great funk band plays, you know, it, it, it's impossible to, to translate it onto a page. The piazzolla is really interesting from a so-called soloist point of view. I don't see the violin as so much as a solo instrument, but it's more a blending into the whole material that the whole group has. And it's really tricky to balance it, to pick the things that you want the audience to listen to. Returning to Branford, a question about the instruments he'd be taking on tour with us led to some surprising insights about his relationship with the saxophone itself. I was curious as well about the particular instruments you've brought out on this tour, do you have a long relationship with your instruments or are they? No, 
they, they tend to change through? They're just metal. I can't develop them. It's like saying, you know, this is my girlfriend. She's a robot. Mm. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> the players in the orchestra, they a lot of them are custodians of these these very old instruments. Those are, those instruments are alive. They are. That's right. And you don't feel the same way about They're They're made of wood. Interesting. They were made by hands. Our instruments are made by machines, even though my tenor was made by hand. For ACO principal violinist Satyavanska, developing a relationship with a string instrument over time shares some surprising differences and similarities with Bramford's experience. Satu currently performs on the 1726 Belgiano Stradivarius. I play the instrument, but the instrument also plays me. All of us violinists and cellists and viola players in the orchestra, we'd be still playing our instruments, even though our great instruments would be taken away. So in a way, yes, it is our sound. And I would sound always like myself, no matter which instrument I would be on. Of course, the sort of the ultimate beauty of having that sort of an incredible violin that you can also play on. It makes the experience even more sort of special. And you actually learn from that sound that the that a special violin makes because you want to start imitating it even when you're playing on a lesser instrument. It's perhaps different when you are talking about a violin that is, you know, hundreds of years old as opposed to a saxophone that gets replaced after, you know, a certain time. It's just metal is just metal. My instrument, I mean, I love the way it sounds. The alto is a Yamaha and it's uh, gold-plated, so it has a warmer sound than the instruments would normally have when they're made with like lacquer or brass lacquer. Mm. And I loved it from the moment I played it. I don't even think of my instrument as an instrument, really. I have to when I'm learning the piece because the instrument gets in the way sometimes. Or I get in the way of it is probably more appropriate. But I'm focused on the sound. I have to find a way to make the sound that I create blend with the orchestra. I don't care which instrument it is. It can be a violin. The Stradivarius or, you know, some of the other ones, I think Amadi, you know, they're beautiful instruments. Not in my hands, they're not. See what I mean? It's like, you know, if it's just the instrument, Hmm. my tour manager could grab and start playing and they go, man, that thing sounds incredible. Yeah. I mean, so much of the music comes from us. Yeah. There's a famous anecdote with uh, Yasha Heifetz where Mm. after a performance, an old lady came up to him and said, your violin sounds absolutely beautiful. And he held up the violin next to his ear and said, I can't hear anything. Yeah, touche. Yeah. It's quite interesting. A lot of what you've been saying about the saxophone, about the instrument, about working with the instrument, it's almost like you're trying to make it disappear as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of that is just I have to play well enough to not be overcome by the physicality of it and the technical aspects of it. And that that took a very long time. My teacher, Harvey Patel, in my first saxophone lesson, he said something to me that is basically, it's my motto for everything. He says, uh, your biggest problem, he says, the saxophone is a strange instrument, but it, it's really well designed. But you can't know that because you are constantly in its way. And what I'm going to teach you how to do is to simply get out of the way and allow it do what it was meant to do so that you can just play music. And when I thought about that, it's like, that's kind of what music is to me. Like, I always try to be out of the way. You hear musicians talking about their concept or their conception. I don't have a conception. I just play music. I'm not trying to revolutionize the music. I'm not trying to innovate. I'm just trying to play the music. And when you think like that, then everything becomes easy. On that meditative note, I concluded my conversation with Branford discussing the role of silence in Sally Beamish's saxophone concerto 
under the wing of the rock. I think the hardest thing about playing any of this music is playing it. When you first get a piece, you want to play it right. And when you're focused on playing it right, then it's really impossible to play it well. It was early on in my nascent you know, classical career, and I didn't really hear the piece. It's something you said earlier. Her music, she uses silence as a weapon. It's a marvelous effect. She lived in Scotland for a very long time. And if you've ever spent any time in Scotland, I mean, there is a lot of silence. Hills and rain and silence. That introduction is so haunting when done the way I'm going to do it now. I have more control over the instrument. That always helps. Particularly dynamic range. I can do more things with the dynamics than I could seven years ago. I'm always a fan of people who can write with really dense, rich harmonies, yet there's always a melody that you can follow and know where you are. That there's always enough daylight. There's always mm. enough daylight. I mean, it has a very interesting sound. I think a lot of people don't know quite what to do with that piece when they hear it. They've never really heard anything quite like it. Like, loneliness can be beautiful. Mm. You know, being alone, solitary, like the, the way she writes it, it's so solitary and stark, and it's, there's a beauty to it. I mean, I've been to her house. You have to embrace the solitude and you can't be afraid of it. And when you can do that, then it is a beauty to the solitude. Thanks for joining me. Brandon Masalas is on tour with the ACO around Australia through May. Till next time, this has been the ACO Podcast. <laughs>